Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 5. Hillbillies Kill Animals, Not Hippies. My vibe was toxic, my fingers sticky, and I was in trouble again for stealing. This time from a jar of communal money that was kept in the kitchen. The money was used to buy food and common household necessities for Cleveland Street. It wasn't hidden, and you didn't have to ask before taking, as long as you were providing for the welfare of others. I used the stolen cash to buy pizzas from Pizza Hut and bags of candy from Woolworths. I ate them secretly in a little fort that I had built outside of my bedroom window. I got away with it for a while because it took time for the grown-ups to realize that the coffers were always running low. When they did notice, it was hard to pin the act of thievery on anyone specifically. With our open-door policy to wayward strangers and misfit characters, all could be suspect. But in the end, it was the pizza boxes that gave me away. They were piling up in my little fort, and as sneaky as I was, it had never occurred to me to hide them or throw them in the garbage. A household meeting was called, and I was terrified. I was about to be the center of attention with the spotlight of justice pointed directly at me and my crimes. My terror was not that of an anticipated beating, it was the discomfort of an impending humiliation. I didn't want to be a bad kid, and I didn't want to disappoint these very nice people, but I couldn't help it. It came so naturally. We all gathered in the hippie circle, and I was given a chance to accept or deny the charges. My silence spoke volumes, and there was no longer any question about who stole the money. Gorton seethed in a dark corner, and Sue looked very disappointed and confused. She made me go around the circle and give everyone a personal apology. I felt horrible and sorry inside, but it didn't translate well. Always the asshole seemed to come first. I mostly looked at my feet and then gave each individual a snarky and obligatory, I'm sorry. After six apologies, it was Bob's turn. I looked at him, and an undefined rage took over. There was no reason for it, except that he was the one who found the pizza boxes. I couldn't make myself say anything, but after Sue gave me a slight whack on the back, an apology drenched in pure petulance popped out. 
With the grace and authority of a man holier than thou, Bob accepted. And that just made me feel more like an asshole. Even though Sue was disappointed, she felt awful for me. My behavior was confusing and erratic, and I was not an easy person to live with. But who was really? We all had issues, big issues. Everyone who lived at Cleveland Street was in his or her 20s, and they themselves were just emerging from the teenage frenzy and fog. Sue and Gorton tried their hardest, but they didn't know what to do. It wasn't easy raising someone else's troubled child, especially when you had existential troubles of your own. And so appropriately, it happened on Halloween, a night that began with fits of hysterical laughter as Sue tried ever so gently to stuff my scarecrow costume with a hay-like filling. No matter what amount of pressure she applied, I couldn't help but feel as though I were being tickled to death. I laughed so hard I wet my pants, but since Sue and I hadn't had this much fun in a long time, and because I would have to unstuff and then restuff to use the bathroom, I ignored it. I went out like all the other kids, crunching through leaves, ringing doorbells, and feeling the spook of lost souls desperately seeking their afterlife. When I returned home with my bag of good and plenty, I found that getting out of my costume was just as fun as getting in. But I was wrong about what was going on in my underwear. It wasn't damp with laughter. It was wet with an ominous brownish-red stain. It scared me, and I thought I was dying, so I ran to Sue with my terror. She chuckled just like she had when I ate the magic brownies, only this time she was excited for me. She told me that I had just gotten my first period. Her excitement pissed me off because I was mad as hell. I did not want to have a period. I already had to deal with obnoxiously overgrown boobs, and now I was going to bleed every month? It wasn't fair. I was too young for this. I was a tomboy, not a very good one, but a tomboy nonetheless, and I knew that the bleeding would change me in the most horrible of ways. I was going to look funny, smell funny, and act funny. And if I couldn't handle the news, how the hell was Billy going to react? How would I ride my bike, play kickball, or climb trees while squeezing a sanitary napkin between my legs? And were men going to think they could have sex with me whenever they wanted? They already acted like it sometimes, and I wasn't even a woman yet. I wasn't about to tell Billy the news, so I just pretended like it never happened. Thanksgiving, 1973. There was probably a lofty and philosophical reason why Gorton decided to kill the Thanksgiving dinner in our backyard. But that's not what I saw. 
I saw a crazy hippie man wearing a shirt made out of the American flag running around the yard with arms a-flailing, chasing a headless, bloody turkey. I couldn't erase the idea that the detached head, which lay next to a tree stump, was still squawking. How could Gorton do something so gross and barbaric in the same backyard where Billy and I had hours of fun and fights playing kickball with the neighborhood kids? Our home plate was the tree stump, and now it was saturated with bright red blood and the last living breath of a dying creature. The headless turkey didn't circle the bases. He did a back-and-forth run from home to first, which was basically as far as I ever got. It was going to take a pounding rain to wash away the blood that outlined the root of my constant athletic defeat. I was so mad at Gorton that I took my outrage to Billy, who thought I was being silly. He told me that his family did things like that all the time which made me even madder. Hillbillies killed animals, not hippies. I couldn't find anyone to be outraged with me, and so on the day of the feast, out of principle and disgust, I refused to eat the turkey. But putting turkey traumas aside, I loved the potluck gatherings of a family called us. Unlike my birthday, I wasn't the focus of attention, so for me, the day buzzed along with music, merriment, and a horn of plenty. The dinner table stretched from one room to another with a wide array of people and food coming together to create a warm holiday glow. Most of us weren't blood-related, so deep familial dramas were non-existent. But this was a room full of hippies, and there was a certain amount of distraction and unease. Many of them had slept together, creating good and bad outcomes. I thought they were all stupid to be so loose with their bodies, and I laughed at their discomforts with one another. I was glad this wasn't my problem, and I decided it would never be. A new year, 1974. 11 years old. Sometime after Christmas, Sheila moved away, and that made Billy happy, until I met Dolores. Dolores was every bit the opposite of Sheila, tall, skinny, and brown, with a kinky kind of hair that was similar to mine. She was very active and outgoing, but there was absolutely no touching with her. I tried once because I thought that's what all of us girls did, but no, that's not what all of us girls do. Dolores had a very contained personality, and you could tell my advances freaked her out. I thought for sure she wasn't going to be my friend anymore, but she seemed to get over it, and in a way, it was a great big relief. Things had gotten pretty strange between Sheila and I, and we both knew why. Neither one of us had ever uttered the word homosexual because we'd never heard of such a thing. That was until I got a haircut from Mr. Toad, 
a guy who seemed to walk airlessly without gravity and flitted about his salon without one hairy macho bone in his body. I thought he must be an artist or a new breed of hippie, similar to that of David Bowie, and after just one cut, I was in love. Sue felt the need to nip this crush in the bud, considering what we had just gone through with Charlie. She told me that Mr. Toad was off-limits for more reasons than our age difference, and the sooner I realized that, the better. Mr. Toad does not have girlfriends. He has boyfriends, and he sleeps with men. It was an interesting concept, but I didn't believe her, or even know what that had to do with anything. Love was love, and I was in it. But this new word gave a name to the game that Sheila and I played, although I wasn't convinced that we were homosexuals. Sure, we had touched each other's private parts, but we both had crushes on Mark Dover, so what did that mean? And not so long ago, I loved Charlie with all my heart, and now I love Dan the drummer. And then there was the schizophrenic with the blood-red hair. He was a man. Sheila wasn't around anymore, so I didn't have to think too much about it. I only went so far as to decide that, when I grew up, I knew I wanted my boyfriend to be a homosexual. Dolores and I did regular kid stuff like roller skating. Her mom would take us to a rink in the black neighborhood, which was always crowded and rambunctious. Most times, I thought I was the only white girl there because I wasn't sure if Dolores was black or white. She was brown, but I thought it might be a tan. Dolores preferred to dance skate slowly with the groove, but I didn't have that kind of grace, so I became a speed queen, pounding the wooden floor lap after lap. The rink was sexy and exhilarating with its multicolored lighting, smoky atmosphere, and R&B music. They didn't play much rock and roll, but they did seem to love the song Frankenstein by Edgar Winter Group. It had a funky beat to start, but when the guitar solo started screeching through the scratchy speakers, all the cool dudes would take to the shadows and leave an open floor for me and the other speed racers to whip around the rink. The cool dudes were black guys who looked like cartoon hippies on wheels. I crashed into many a wall because I couldn't take my eyes off them. They swooned around gracefully with giant fluorescent pom-poms springing from their laces and bouncing gently to the beat. They wore short shorts, tank tops, and red bandanas around their necks. A cigarette most generally hung from the side of their mouth, and a wide-toothed comb was carried in the afro. Like Dolores, they dance-skated to the music, rolling forward, small steps, wide steps, kicking up a knee, twirling to the left, then to the right, spinning around to do a silky smooth backward skate or whatever the music called for. 
There was always a gentle rhythmic hand clap or a fist in the air accentuating the bump, bump beat of the bass. They were sleek and soulful and I did my best to imitate them but never succeeded. Billy wouldn't go with us to that rink. He said he wasn't comfortable around black people, but I knew better. Billy couldn't skate. We had gone once or twice to the other rink, and the minute he hit the floor, his feet would do a little shuffle and then fly out from under him. He landed hard, and it hurt to watch, but I couldn't help but laugh. His squishy, round body looked like a splattered load of lard trying desperately to gather itself into the fetal position. I'd grab his hands to try and pull him up, and we'd both go down, laughing. Cleveland Street was a house full of antics, some appreciated and some not. Gorton had an idea one night, which I thought was just a midnight walk in the snow. Had I known what he was up to, I would have stayed home. The grown-ups were inebriated as we trudged noisily down the railroad tracks. The snow on the ground reflected brightly off the moon, providing ample light to guide our way. The winter air felt clean and the pace refreshing. I walked mostly in silence, listening to the absurdity of my elders as they told silly jokes with obnoxious innuendos. After what seemed like a very long way, the conversation became a drunken speculation about which path would lead us from the tracks to the street. It took several tries of plowing through prickly bushes before we found the right one. Once we pushed through to the wide open, dark and quiet street, I saw that we had made our way to South Street House, the other big hippie house on the opposite side of town. I didn't know anyone who lived there, but I had heard that they were uptight hippies who lived by a much stricter code of conduct than we did on Cleveland Street. The house was completely dark quiet and spooky, and I wondered what the heck we were doing here. My every instinct told me not to follow Gorton, but I did as he led us up the steps and through the front door. I got nervous. I didn't like sneaking around other people's houses in the middle of the night, especially when they were sleeping. This was stupid, and the grown-ups were acting more like children now, trying to squelch their sloppy, nervous laughter. South Street was two or three stories high, and it rambled. No one really knew the layout of the house, particularly as it was shrouded in dark and indistinguishable mounds of matter. We went from room to room, getting louder and louder. And unfortunately, we did find someone. It was a man sleeping on a pallet on the floor in one of the bedrooms. Peering into the room from the hallway, Gorton signaled for us all to be quiet. This was easy for me, but not for Sue, whose muffled laughter was echoing in the darkness and instigating the others. Gorton backed away from the door and started taking off all his clothes. All but me followed. 
I was horrified when the naked, hairy hippies and fully clothed me tiptoed into the room, encircled the bed, and sat cross-legged on the floor. Somehow they managed to get themselves quiet and sit in a reverential manner, as if they were performing a sacred ritual that involved nothing more than looking at this poor man. I didn't know what they expected to happen, but what happened for me was disgusting. Within seconds of them sitting and squatting, the smell of body and butthole enveloped the room. The aroma was so strong that I thought I was going to be sick. I was sitting next to Sue, so I assumed it was all her, but it wasn't. It was about eight or nine flaring buttholes releasing toxins into the air. The stench must have saturated our victim's dreams because he tossed and turned and then lifted his sleepy head. For a very long moment, he peered groggily around the room trying to sort out what he thought he was seeing. When he realized it was people, naked people, he grabbed the blankets and pulled them over his head. The hippie started laughing, and the unknown man came out from under the covers, cussing and screaming bloody murder. The house lit up and people appeared out of nowhere, zombie hippies wrapped in blankets, sleeping bags, and after-midnight musk. The bright shine of overhead lights illuminated what a laughable mess Cleveland Street was, looking like a bunch of clumsy teenagers trying to get their clothes on after being caught in the act. I was never so happy to be fully clothed in all my life. The South Street hippies glared at us with looks of disappointment and violation. They didn't think this was funny at all. Gordon should have known better, is what got whispered around town the next day. But I knew that probably Gordon did. Mm-hmm.